0: This is an SBC Media Partners production. Swung on, hit high and deep, right field, could it, be? It, could it, be? it is high
1: Phillies fans, these are your glove stories
0: with Murph. Let's check in with Greg Murphy. Murph, you got a special guest, huh? Hi, everyone, and welcome to Glove Stories with Murph. I'm very excited about this week's guest. Uh, many Phillies fans obviously got to know him in the early 90s and a part of that 1993 team I got to really know him when he came back as a coach with the Philadelphia Phillies and uh everybody remembers the name Harry Callis made it famous Mickey Morandini is our guest today Mick good to see you man good to see you I miss you man I miss you well thank you I miss you as well I know you uh you were part of the opening day festivities at Citizens Bank Park uh yesterday and uh you know, let's, let's talk a little bit about opening day because your first opening day, 1992, with the Big League Club. Now, you had been up a yeah. couple of times before that, but on the opening day roster for the first time in 1992, jogging out to the line, hearing your name announced, uh, it, it had to be a pretty special moment for you, yeah?
2: The most incredible moment there is is opening day, hands down. and um, that particular year, we had 60,000 fans at the ballpark. I mean, you can imagine what 60,000 fans seem like, or, you know, it's so loud. And um, it's just a special day. And and the big thing is, you want to go out, you want to get that first hit out of the way. You want to get that first ground ball where you don't bobble it, make an error, yeah. get that out of the way. And then you can just play baseball. And fortunately for me, on that opening day, I had two hits off of my buddy Greg Maddox. Yeah. And I made all the plays, no errors. So it was a good first. Uh, first day
0: for me. Yeah, you know, it's funny because we forget that uh even as professional ball players, you know, there are butterflies and there are some nerves. And and it's probably more excitement than it is nervousness to to play the game, you know, the game that you guys have been playing your entire lives. But th- those butterflies, I mean, that makes you feel alive. I think that's why opening day is so special, right?
2: yeah and i you know i had butterflies before every game i ever played that was just kind of how i got pumped up and it was my energy you know what motivated me but opening day is extra special um, the big part is just leading up to it you know time goes so slow leading up to it and you know finally you cross the line you get your name announced and the starting lineup and the game finally starts and uh, you put a lot of pressure on yourself on opening day because you don't think about it. You have 162 games, so so <laughs> what if I go over for 4 on opening day? But nobody wants to do that because you want, like I said, you want to get that first hit out of the way. And and uh, it's just a special, special day. And the, you know the the fans, everybody thinks their team's gonna you know get to the playoffs and win a World Series, so everybody's hyped. And um, it was a lot of fun. I, I remember that day like it was yesterday.
0: You know, it, it. I love hearing that the emotions that go along with uh, getting ready for a game. When, when you were a younger player back uh, in high school, uh, back in college in, in Indiana, when were you? Again, were you that kind of player that you used that nervous energy to kind of fire you up, even at that young age? Absolutely.
2: Uh, I was always a little bit nervous. I, 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 you know, there's a lot of players that seem so calm and relaxed. And I was always a little bit nervous. But like I said, that's what gave me the energy and excitement to go out and play. And um, there was probably something wrong with me if I wasn't (laughs) nervous. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like Maybe I'm losing love for the game or something if I wasn't nervous. But uh, I just loved competing, and that energy, that nervous energy, really got me going and got me motivated and got me ready to play for the game.
0: You're not nervous now, are you, Mick? I mean, it's just I'm it's just always not... nervous talking <laughs> humor. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I'll try to I'll try to calm you down. Yeah. Let's talk. Let's talk about those early days before you got to the big leagues, because uh, you know you were a top prospect. Your numbers at every level you played were outstanding. You didn't spend a whole lot of time in the minor leagues but uh but you did spend a couple of years so tell us a little bit about those days because we hear the great stories about uh, riding the buses and getting ready for games and working on the grounds crew to to make ends meet w- what do you remember about the your short p- time in the minor leagues
2: yeah it was um it was a grind um and you know your first year in the minor leagues you just don't know you don't know if you belong you don't know how you rank against other players and, and um, you're excited. You're nervous. You don't know how the organization feels about you that, you know, there's not a lot of talk about that. So, um, I started out in Spartanburg and my manager was Mel Roberts, mm-hmm. um, great guy, um, and I started off fortunately for me, I started off really well. Got the confidence going early. I was, uh, I was, a. you know, I'm 5'10", 155 pounds at that time. So I'm a little skinny thing playing shortstop. Got off to a really good start, had a couple of good months, and then went to Clearwater, got moved up to Clearwater, had a couple of good weeks there. And, and I made a real quick transition from Clearwater to Reading. And then I just went off in Reading at yeah. like 360 and had a good final two months. And uh, things just rolled from there. So I was very fortunate. I only spent two years in the minor leagues, which is obviously really fast for, for most players. So um, just really lucky uh, to, to uh, you know, getting off to that good start was huge for
0: me. Yeah, no doubt about it. It's so funny because, you know, we had Mike on last week, Mike Schmidt on last week. And, and even Mike, the, the greatest third baseman to ever play the game, was talking about how he didn't know if he was good enough, you know, even in the minor leagues as he was making – that he, you know, making that step at each level, he didn't know if he was good enough to be in the big leagues and be a, a good player in the big leagues. When does it, when did it click for you that, okay, you know, you're making this rapid rise through the Phillies organization did you say to yourself, oh, the, you know, the big leagues are right around the corner, it's going to happen, or, or is it kind of like, uh, I don't know? <laughs> yeah, I,
2: I still don't know if I knew. I think once I got to AAA, I was like, all right, hey, man, you got a chance now. You know, if you can play well here, you've got a really good chance. And I didn't play as well my first year in AAA, um, hit about 260, and I made a transition from shortstop to second base. Uh, they didn't think I had the arm strength to play short. So they moved me to second base and it was a big transition. Second base is completely different than playing shortstop. So I had a lot of things to learn, but, uh, fortunately I, I learned them pretty quickly. And, um, you know, I was playing in great Scranton, Pennsylvania on a turf field, um, a great ballpark and just had a lot of fun up there. And fortunately, uh, the Phillies traded Tommy Herr
0: right for the <laughs> yeah.
2: September call-ups and I got called up the next day.
0: Yeah. Do you remember uh, hearing that her got traded? Did, did, did you, you know, get the goosebumps at that moment? Did you think it's actually okay, this a could
2: happen? funny story? Now, it was three days before our season was supposed to end. And the rumor was I wasn't getting caught up. So I was preparing to go home, you know, have my off season, blah, blah, blah. So we take batting practice. I come into the clubhouse and the manager was Bill Dancy and coach came out and said you know skipper wants to see you i'm like what the heck he want to see me for so i go into his office he sits me down and he goes the phillies just traded tommy her they're playing a doubleheader tonight and you're starting the second game wow <laughs> so i went from going home in a couple of days to, oh my god i'm playing in a big league game in like three hours so i pack everything up drive to philly and i get there and the first game's already going And I end up pinch hitting in the seventh inning. I have a real good at bat against uh, Eric Schau. And I hit a line drive on a full count to Freddie Lynn, who was playing left field for the Padres. So I had to, you know, I felt good about myself. I put the ball in play. So I come up in extra innings, game went extra innings. And I got my first base hit off of Greg Harris. Next batter bunted me over. And Johnny Kruk singled me home for the winning run. So I went from playing in a Triple A game to getting my first big league hit and scoring the winning run in my first game. So it was pretty exciting.
0: And that's what I love. I love hearing these stories. That's that's what makes baseball so great. Because those kinds of things don't happen in other sports. Where right. you're you're in one city uh, playing in a minor league game in the morning and and have to head on and get your first major league hit later that right. night. That's, and that's the great, rest
2: right? of that September, I was awful. I was hitting about a buck fifty. I was bad. And it was really the first time that I had failed for an extended period of time. Like, you know, little league, Legion sure. Ball, high school, college. I was always successful. And then all of a sudden, for a month here, I can't buy a base hit. So I'm going into the last weekend and the last two games, and I got to face Maddox and Mike Balecki, who were two pretty good pitchers at the time. And I ended up going four for four off Maddox, two for four off Bilecki. I went six for eight. I went from 150 to 250. And that was huge for me because I really didn't think I belonged in the big leagues. And now I get six out of eight the last two games. I get, you know, head into the offseason feeling a lot better about myself and uh, ended up uh, being in the big leagues from that point on. But that was two really huge games for me.
0: Yeah, it's amazing what it what can you know, turn the switch on for, for players uh, and certainly going six for eight against guys like that, that's going to do it. It's going to make you feel pretty good. Well, you've brought him up twice. We might as well talk about Greg Maddox at this point because, you know, one of the best pitchers of his generation for sure, Hall of Famer, obviously a terrific uh, uh, guy on the mound. But, man, you had his number his entire career to the point where he gave an interview about a month ago. And he was talking about you. He used a word I don't even think I can use on the podcast. But... Yeah, I wasn't real happy
3: with that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. hey, now's your chance to get him back. But uh, yeah. you owned the Hall of Famer, did you not? And I
2: can't really explain it. Um, <laughs> you know, I was a good fastball hitter. I did not hit guys that like a Bob Tugsberg. I don't know if you remember Bob Tugsberg. Yeah, he couldn't break glass with a fastball, and he had three curveballs, and they were slow, slower, and more slow. Couldn't sniff them but the guys that threw hard i hit well and maddox wasn't a power pitcher per se but he threw the ball pretty good i mean he could hit 93 94 but he had such amazing cutters and sinkers and change ups and things like that and he could you know he could locate them all but i tried to take the cut the plate in half with him and i either looked away or looked inside you couldn't cover the whole plate with him you just couldn't do it and i was pretty successful with that guessed pretty well with him and just hit him well uh, and and that's really how i explain it now i hit the smoltzes and the pedro martinezes and the shillings and those types of players andy bennis i hit like 450 off of the guys that threw hard i could hit.
0: That's, that's that's wild, but uh, the fact that he still remembers you all these years later, knowing that uh, that you you got to him more often than not, and one of the biggest moments in your career, and we'll jump ahead to it because it, it involved Greg Maddox, 1993 NLCS, the, the Phillies trying to close it out against the Braves. You have the the, the lead late in the game, but Maddox was you know holding his own. You come up and you end it right there. You you put him to bed. Yeah, I think it was four to two. I think it was the
2: sixth inning, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, sixth, sixth inning, inning yeah. and uh, there's a runner on second. It was Milk Thompson and Lenny's coming up with two outs and they walk. Yeah. Obviously the right move. Lenny had an MVP year that year, right move. So I get up there nervous as hell. There's 60,000 screaming Philly fans. and I'm just like, you know, battle. You got to battle. And he threw a couple of the nastiest changeups. One, I swung at one in the dirt and the next pitch, I checked my swing and it probably could have gone either way if I went or not. And they, you know, they, they said I didn't swing and he went right back to it and he hung it and he left it up in the zone and I was able to rifle it down the third or uh, right field corner for a triple and, you know, expand the lead to six to two. And that was the ball game. But, yeah. uh, you know, earlier in the game, first at bat, I hit that line drive off his shin and I do think that affected him. He seemed to be starting to limp as the game went on, and probably couldn't push off. I don't remember what leg it was, or couldn't land, or push off on it quite as much. So um, it was a, it was a fun moment. I remember getting to third base, high fiving Larry Bow, and just taking it all in because you know sixty thousand screaming fans, and I saw uh, you know the manager coming out and taking Maddox out. That was a pretty special moment.
0: Yeah, no wonder he called you that word. I would too.
2: Yeah, hey. <laughs> when you're putting the same sentence with a Tony Gwynn, because those Amen. are the two guys that hit him really well, that's obviously a huge honor. So I'll take it.
0: Yeah, no doubt about it. Two Hall of Famers right there, and you're in that sentence because you are you had the second most, uh, second best success off of Greg Maddox behind Tony Gwynn in his career. So that's uh, that's pretty impressive. All right, let's let's go back back to the younger days of Mickey Morandini because. You played in the Cape Cod League, which is the wooden bat league. Of, you know, you know, tons of prospects come out of that league. Uh, 1987, and you tore it up, batting title, MVP, living large in in Cape Cod as a young man. And I'm all I can think of is Freddie Prince, and 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 you know, your catch head, or whatever it's uh, yeah, on Freddie Prince's. body. what was it like? Uh, what was it like owning the Cape Cod League back in the no, late eighties? That was a fun. Summer
2: for me. You know, you go up in a beautiful area and you have a job, they get you a job. And I was a painter. I painted houses. Um, so I would paint porches and railings. I didn't do anything up high, obviously, but uh, that was our summer job. So we'd go out in the morning from nine to about one o'clock and paint, come back home and then get ready for the game. And we did that for, you know, a couple months up there. And uh just a blast. And once again, you go up there, you know, you're playing all the elite college players and you don't know, you don't know, no, Do I belong? Well, we're going to find out real quick here. And once again, I got off to a really hot start. The confidence was high and uh, just played really well. I hit 375, I think up there. I, I, and the, the funny part about it is the last day of the year, I'm in a batting title chase with Robin Ventura, Okay, you're talking about a guy just had a 50 some game hitting streak and was talked about tremendously as a college player. So I'm in this battle. It's the last day. And he had an earlier game and he went two for four. So I had to go three for four to beat him. And I did, I went three for four and I beat them by percentage points to win the batting title up there. So that was pretty incredible. So I also, I don't know, I think I still hold the stolen base record up there. I stole 45 bases that summer. And I think I still have the stolen base record for up there. So that was pretty good.
0: Yeah, you were, you were sneaky fast uh, in those early days too. Yeah. Well when you weigh 155 pounds, <laughs> you better be fast. Yeah. Well, if the wind's blowing behind you, you get you get a little extra push. <laughs> exactly. But uh, you
2: know, I was always a good base stealer. Um, I, I was fast. I wasn't Mormon Quinn fast, but I was fast and I knew how to run the bases. I felt like I was a good base runner. And um, so yeah, I was I was one of those guys that needed to get on base and make things happen. And uh up there I did. I did do that.
0: Yeah, that that's great stuff. Uh, tell me a little bit about, um, minor league days. I know they were, they were short, but, uh, they weren't always silky smooth. There were some bumps in the road, I guess is the best way to describe uh, one particular day.
2: Well, I played in the South Atlantic league and that's one of the worst travel leagues there is. I mean, the, the the distance between, um, cities that you play in is far you're on a bus and, and people don't understand you play a night game at home. And then you go on the road and it's a, you know, eight hour bus ride. You don't get into, you know, seven, eight in the morning. You got to play another game that night. It just, okay. it, it's very trying. But when I was coaching in um, Williamsport, we had a bus trip to uh, Brooklyn. We were playing, playing Brooklyn. So we play the game at night and we're driving back from, from Brooklyn to the hotel and our bus driver gets lost. And he finds himself in Staten Island and he's panicking because we've been driving around for like an hour. It was like a 20 minute bus ride back to the hotel. We're driving around and he's panicking and panicking and he runs, uh, accidentally runs a red light and an SUV slams into us. And the bus is literally riding along the curb and on the other side of the curb, there's a 200 foot straight downhill embankment. And we're actually the right front and back tire is literally riding the curve, keeping us from going down this embankment. And fortunately enough, the bus driver got thrown out of the seat, got back up and started turning the wheel to keep us from going down. The, I'm telling you, if we'd have went down that embankment, there would have been a lot of serious injuries. And, and the bus driver, even though he ran a red light, probably saved some of our lives, to be honest with you. And you can look at photos online of it. If you type in Williamsport uh, bus crash, it it was pretty, pretty bad. Now, fortunately, um, nobody was seriously hurt. But the worst part about it was, that was at one in the morning. And we didn't get back to the hotel till like four in the morning after all the fire trucks and police and all that came. Um, We had to play an 11 a.m. game in Brooklyn and it was kids day. (laughs) They wouldn't cancel the game because they had 5,000 kids coming to the game. So we had to strap it on and play an actual game the next day. And uh, I give our kids a lot of credit because we hung in there. We lost three to two. But, uh, yeah, it could have been really bad.
0: Yeah, you know, I've spent a decade riding those buses, you know, just to and from airports in the big leagues and getting on the planes and stuff. Uh, it, it can be it can be dicey at times. That, that's a, that's a scary story. But uh, I'm glad it, it glad it all played out the way yeah, it did. Yeah. Um, let's go back to '93 because uh, you know that that team is still beloved in this town and uh, for for so many reasons. And I was you know recently watching the '93 season in review again, just the the video, and it, it's just it's just so much fun. That team, even when things started to the when the wheels started to um fall off late in the season you know you had had the lead for the entire season but it, it dwindled in September the team was so loose and and I look at a guy like Jim Fergusi, and I, I was lucky enough to to be around Jim for a couple of years and get to know him a little bit and you know he always seemed like such a tough guy and but, but he was pretty loose with you guys was he not I mean were you guys a reflection of Jim at that point?
2: Well, I think we were a reflection of Darren Dalton for the most part. because mm-hmm. Darren led that clubhouse and, and and there weren't a lot of things that ever got to Jim, to be honest with you, because it, it had to go through Darren first. <laughs> but Jim was a manager that as long as you went out, played the game the right way, played hard, he left you alone. Just go out and play. Now, if, you know, if you did some mental, had some mental mistakes and, didn't play the game the right way. Then you got caught into the office, but that was a rarity. But, um, and, and be honest with you, Larry Boa usually got to us before Jim even had a chance. Um, if, it, if there was anybody that was gonna panic on that team, it was gonna be Larry. Um, but uh, yeah, Jim was a great manager. He, he, you know well, gosh, he played for 18 years and was a, a coach and did several things for a number of other years and just a great guy. Now he's obviously, He's uh, he's one of the biggest factors um, of my career. He was the one that called me up. He was my first call-up. Yeah. So I owe Jim a lot. And he 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 stayed with me through some rough times. And like I said, when I was struggling, he stuck, stuck with me. And I really appreciated that. But he was just a great manager. He pulled all the right buttons that year with the platoon in and, and things like that. And um, everything clicked. Everything yeah. just clicked.
0: Yeah, so many strong personalities on that team and, you know, and coaches as well in in the organization at that time, uh, he, he really was the perfect guy to kind of yeah. be the puppet master for all of that, but uh, there are so many fun moments from that 93 season, um, what I want to know is. Take me back inside the clubhouse, because late in games, you know, if you, if you go back and watch some of those uh, highlight reels and stuff, late in the game, so many guys that had played in the game and then were now out of the game, back in the trainers room, watching the rest of the games, late-night games, extra inning games. There just seemed to be such camaraderie um, at all times with that club. Like, everybody seemed to just – every they were so invested in every game.
2: Yeah. And that's Darren again – you know, he, he, he had us come together and pull for each other. There weren't hitters and pitchers. I mean, we were one unit at that time. He was big on us sticking together. Um, but, uh, you know, after games, we would go into the training room. We'd ice. We'd eat our post-game meal. And what we did was we talked baseball. Yeah. We talked about the game that we just played. We talked about the upcoming game tomorrow, certain pitchers. Certain things that happened that we need to improve on, certain things we're doing. I mean, we just talked baseball. And I can remember Darren every day on that training table with two bags of ice on his knees, and Lenny would have a bag of ice on something, and Crucky would have a bag of ice. Well, Crucky would have about 20 bags of ice on him. <laughs> um, but we just sat around. There was probably 10 to 15 players in there. Once in a while, Harry the K would come in and join us and talk baseball. Um, it was just a special, special moment and you know, the game would end at 11, 11.30, and uh, we wouldn't get out of there till 1, one thirty. just talking baseball. It was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, and you, you you failed to mention the bags of ice that were sitting on the cooler, too. <laughs>
2: well, yeah, to there the was a cooler cold. of yeah. some <laughs> alcoholic beverages in there. there yeah. That was probably what attracted everybody to the training room, for sure.
0: Yeah, the, uh, the, the ice uh, the ice got a workout in 93, all it over did. the bods and all over the beers. Too, so. definitely did. It definitely yeah. did. Uh, hey, before I let you go, one one of the things that people um, will always remember about you is one remarkable moment in your career. Uh, it, you know, you would think back to 1992, and and you're playing a game against the Pirates, and something happens that is is a rarity in baseball. It happens; it's a rarity. But w- with you, the unassisted triple play that hadn't happened in decades, and you know, obviously, right man at the right time. But that had to be pretty exciting. Take me through the play and when your mind kind of realizes what's happening and and how quickly it goes
2: yeah it's uh you know we're playing the pirates i'm playing in my hometown so i have a lot of friends and family at the game and this one play goes to show don't ever not go to a game because you never know what you're going to miss you really don't yeah and um they have runners at first and second, no outs. We're in a tie ball game. I think it was the sixth inning again, sixth or seventh inning, Kurt Schillings on the mound. And this is when the Pirates were really good. Bonds, Benia, Vance, like the whole crew when they went to the playoffs for, you know, three or four straight years. So normally in that situation with a full count, you don't send the runners because you don't want to get doubled up. Well, Leland sent them. And Jeff King hits a line drive up the middle. And I dive for the ball, catch it. I'm probably three or four steps from second base. So I, you know, sprint to second. And Barry's standing right there. He didn't attempt to get back. So, I mean, the play lasted really probably four seconds, maybe, four or five seconds. And I got three outs. I remember Whitey screaming, run it to first, run it to first. Like, he was so disembobulated, He didn't know what was going on. So, yeah, I got three outs in a matter of five seconds, and I'm running off the field, and I'm just, you know, all happy, you know, and I flipped the ball in the air like a dummy. Yeah. And yeah, I just, you know, I didn't know. I didn't know. And I go in, but I got high five everybody, and I look up on the scoreboard, and it said Mickey Morini just turned the first unassisted triple play in the regular season for a second baseman. So I was the first second baseman to do it in the regular season. One other guy had done it in a playoff game, I guess. Yeah. That was the ninth to do it, and there's only been 15. So uh, yeah, incredible
0: moment. You you never know what you're going to see at a ballpark, or you never know what's going to happen when you're out there on that field. Um, but, uh, yeah, a cool, cool moment. And, uh, some big names involved in that play too, you know, uh, so a little piece of baseball history, did, did your, did they take your glove to Cooperstown? Did anything so like they have the base? I wouldn't give them
2: my glove because that was something I was still using. Your gamer, yeah. <laughs> That's my gamer. I'm not giving up my gamer. And, uh, but they took the base. They have my Jersey. Um, you know, Kurt Schilling said he saw me flip the ball up and went back and got the ball. Now. No video shows that happening. So what I really think happened is the ball stayed there. The next pitcher for the Pirates came out, started pitching in the inning, and I'm assuming someone probably fouled it off. Yeah. And a fan probably has it. Now, I say I have the ball. I don't know if I really do or not, but if actually, I have it really didn't go back. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> I bet a fan has it and doesn't even know it.
0: Now that's, that's pretty cool. Yep. Yeah. Again, you just never know. Yeah. Well, well, Mickey, uh, it's always fun to talk with you. I got a chance to be with you down in the uh, fantasy camp last year, which yeah. was a lot of fun. And, uh, well, two years ago, I guess at this point, COVID yeah. canceled the last one, but, uh, as the commissioner down there, uh, you'll, uh, you'll get back there pretty soon, right? You're going back this summer, right? Right, we're doing it in Philly in Philly, yeah, from June
2: 24th to the 28th of the, the projected dates. And uh, we're going to obviously have to mix it up a little bit, and there won't be quite as many teams or things like that. But it would be fun for some of these guys to be able to play at CBP. So uh, we're going to do it a little different, and hopefully we can uh, get everybody out
0: there and have some fun. Yeah, it always is a good time. And always a good time talking to you, Mick. Uh, thanks for taking a couple minutes to be here on Glove Stories, and uh, hopefully uh, we'll see you soon. Sounds good. I appreciate it. Thanks, Murph. Mickey Morandini, guys. I want to thank Mickey Morandini again for joining us on episode two of Glove Stories with Murph. Mickey talked about how important Darren Dalton was for the 93 Phil, certainly a clubhouse leader. And Mickey, along with Tommy Green and former Eagle Trey Thomas, are all participating in a very special event to benefit the Darren Dalton Foundation. It's called Painting for Dutch. It's a baseball themed night, which will include sharing memories of Dutch, reminiscing about baseball, and of course, doing some painting as well. The date is April 23rd. It's online, and you can still register to participate. For more information on Painting for Dutch, please visit the Darren Dalton Foundation.org. All right, welcome back to Glove Stories with Murph. Thanks again to Mickey Morandini for being with us and sharing those memories. Now it is time to relive one game from one of the most special seasons in Philly's history. We're going to do it every week, either 1980 or 2008. This week, we relive opening day 1980, and we do so with Larry Bowen, the shortstop from the 1980 World Series team and uh, a lifelong Philadelphia favorite. Larry, good to, good to see you, first of all.
3: All right, Murph, it's, it's great to be on. And I, obviously, anytime we can uh, turn the clock back, yeah, 80 was a very special year sure for the, the Phillies' first ever world championship. And some of those memories still remain with me for a long time.
0: I, I'm sure. And I, and I love hearing you guys talk about that uh, time in your lives. And I know the fans do, too. So let's set the scene. It was April 11th, and it was opening day, Veterans Stadium, back in 1980. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of talk about the 1980 team kind of having their window has closed. You know, you guys had been in the postseason three straight years, then you missed it in 79, and folks were were down on the 80 team. So what do you remember about uh, opening day? I, I know there was a special delivery of the first baseball on opening day. What can you tell us about that?
3: Yeah, Kite, man, but getting back to us us having high expectations, Rudy Carpenter, who was probably as, as, as good an owner as I've ever played for, basically told us, hey, guys, you know, you got to do it this year because we had come up short, gone to the playoffs. We kept playing Cincinnati and the Dodgers, and they were better than us, whether it was a play, a pitch, an umpire's call, whatever, and they beat us. And this year we knew that if we didn't get there, they were going to break this team up and it, And really didn't want to do that. But, you know, reality sets in, and he, he went with us as far as he could. But I remember that game because Steve Rogers, who was a nemesis for us, outstanding pitcher. And of course we had the big guy going for us. Yeah. Steve Carlton. but I remember kite man, because they were, <laughs> they were, they weren't sure bill Giles had another great promotion, but they weren't sure because it was a little windy and they weren't sure if he could pull this off, but he did. The wind wasn't as strong as he did that earlier in the seventies and they had yeah. it canceled and he didn't One, one of them didn't even work. So, but this one, this one uh, worked and uh, we had a good game that day. Carlton yep. pitched a great game for us, and anytime we beat Rogers, that was something special for us.
0: Yeah. So Kite Man got things started right in the 1980 season. Unlike earlier, when he had tried to deliver that first ball, he right. landed. He landed on on the infield, got the baseball, and the game got underway. And really, as you said, you know, you had Carlton on the mound, so you feel good about that. But Steve Rogers was a hell of a pitcher back then for for the Expos. So the action for the Phillies begins in the bottom of the first. They got the first two outs very quickly. But then Maddox walks and Schmidty walks and upsteps Greg lazinski to get the season started off right,
3: right? Well, the Bulls came up with big hits all year for us. Uh, I still say, besides Tony Perez, Greg lazinski is right behind Tony in two out RBIs, which are very difficult to get in baseball. But Bull did it all year. You know, we know how great Schmidty was in all the RBIs. So when you look at Bulls RBIs, you're saying, wow, how did he pick up all those? Because Schmidty usually did his job. But Greg Lezinski, uh, uh who was my roommate at, for a long time in the minor league system, uh, he got the big hit off Rodgers and anytime you can Rodgers a sicker ball pitcher Murph. He doesn't allow too many home runs, but he allowed one on opening day there and usually and it did stand up when you get Carlton that many runs early you, you can put that in the wind column.
0: Yeah, no doubt about it. The three run shot put the fills up three nothing and uh, kind of foresh- foreshadowing for what was going to happen in the postseason. But we'll get there later on uh, down the road. In right. But the, the three run home run. So the, the fills are up. Uh, Carlton pitching masterfully shuts down the Expos through four. Bottom of the fourth inning, Lazinski grounds out. Then Boone gets a single. You ground to shortstop, fielder's choice. You're safe at first. Boone out at second. Right. And then Manny Trio comes up and he singles to right center field, and you score all the way from first. Tell me about it. Yeah,
3: I was running on the pitch. One thing I could do, I ran pretty good for for a guy that uh, wasn't uh, known for stealing 50 bases. But I I usually got my 30 to 35 stolen bases. I was running on the pitch, and the outfielders, they had a very good outfield out there. They didn't go straight across the cutting, they had to run at an angle. And then once I saw that, our third base coach, uh, uh, Lee Ilya, he kept waving me. He knew that I, I was very aggressive running the bases. And I scored from first on that play. So, Manny Trio, again, with a big hit for us, He's, he did a tremendous job all year. And I would have the ability to score on that ball and give us an extra run there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Do you remember play at the plate? Were you, were you
3: safe standing up? No, I had to slide. I okay. had to slide. And of course, back then, uh, Gary Carter, who was their catcher, you know, you, you they could block the plate. Yeah. And most catchers that I ran into much bigger than I was, so I remember sliding into him. But you know, he sort of gave a little bit because I had beaten the throw. But uh, it wasn't like the rules are today, where the catcher gives you a lane and all that stuff.
0: I know. Don't get me started, Larry. <laughs> and I won't get you started either on Oh that. yeah, right. <laughs> you guys score two more uh, in the bottom of the seventh. You're up six to one, and Carlton is just cruising. But in the ninth he does get into a little bit of trouble. Dallas leaves him in. Uh, he gets the first out, then a double and a home run. Now, all of a sudden, it's 6-3. to three. In today's game, the manager's coming out, is he not, and getting your closer at this point, don't you think? Yeah, he is,
3: but not with Carlton. No. I, I've seen Carlton many times where the manager goes out and he literally says, who are you bringing in? And they name a name, and he goes, no, you're not. And the manager, <laughs> the manager walks back. So when you have a Hall of Fame pitcher out there, you know he's going to finish the deal, and Carlton didn't like pitching seven innings or eight innings. Yeah, he wanted the complete game. He was a horse out there, and we went to him a lot uh, during my career with the Phillies, and of course during '80 he, he stood out again. But he finished the game, and we end up winning the first game. And normally, Murph, we, our starts in April weren't very good in '80. Yeah. Maybe even you can even go before '80. We just didn't have good Aprils. I don't know what the reason was. It seemed like we were ready to go out of spring training, whether. It was the cold weather, but uh, you know we, we were able to get that in the wind column, and that's good to start off the season
0: 1-0. Always is good to start the season 1-0, but to your point, uh, as the season continued on in the month of April, the 1980 team only 6-9 and nine in the month of April, and uh, you guys were able to you know kind of put together the back end of this season to get into postseason, but again, those are conversations for another day, but okay. <laughs> uh, opening day, the win, the fills go one and Oh, and uh, they were off. No one knew at that point how it was going to end. We do already, but we're going to relive it right here on glove stories with Murph each and every week. Uh, Larry, good to see you. And uh, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Okay.
3: All right, Murph. You take care.
0: All right. Larry Boer joining us when we come back, Ben Davis to take a look at the 2021 Phil squad. Stay with us and welcome back to glove stories with Murph and time now to check in on the 2021 philadelphia phillies and uh well off to a pretty good start and to help us do that we bring in my former partner my good friend ben davis from the nbc sports philadelphia broadcast team ben nice to see you good to see you murph yeah, good to be seen. And know uh, yeah, it's good to be doing this again. Hopefully Absolutely. we'll do a little, a little bit more. Uh, but, I wear my green hat just for you, buddy. I appreciate that. It looks good <laughs> on you. Um, let, let me ask you, because, uh, you know, we always say, and we have said over the last couple of years when this team it has talent, you see it on paper, um, but they need to get out to a good start. Well, April has been tough over the last couple of years, but off to a pretty good start so far this season. It started with the sweep of the Braves opening weekend, which was just fantastic. And what I noted was just the top of that rotation. You've got Nola, Wheeler, and Eflin, and everyone talked about how they needed to pitch well. Well, right out of the gate, those three looked pretty good.
1: They looked awesome. Uh, first and foremost, their fastball command was outstanding. Uh, they were able to mix and obviously they're all speed pitches, but their fastball command to a man was excellent. Uh, really good late movement, uh, especially with Wheeler and Eflin on their sinkers. Uh, I just really, really like what I saw. They stayed down in the zone. They pitched to their strengths yeah. and they, they invited contact. And that's what you like to see. And that's why I think you see why the games are so quick, you know, pitching to contact, not trying to miss bats. Um, you know, we'll see how the, the rest of the rotation fills out, but. Um, I liked really what I saw out of the bullpen in that particular series. And, uh, I think it can only get better.
0: Yeah. You know, there's a lot of excitement right now surrounding just the, the new faces on this team, because when you look at, from an offensive standpoint, you know, the term we keep hearing is they're rolling it back. They're, they're doing what they did last year, which is just fine from an offensive standpoint, they were pretty Mm -hmm. darn good offensively back in 2020. But the pitching, you know, a little bit of the rotation has changed, but the bullpen has been revamped and that's given a lot of people a lot of optimism.
1: Yeah, without a doubt. And think about Murph, how much pressure that takes off not only the starting pitching, yeah. but also the the lineup. They don't they're not saying, Oh, we have to go out and score 10 runs tonight because of the bullpen. I mean, it was it was historically bad last year. And uh what they were able to do in the offseason to solidify that bullpen, bring in these guys. I mean, the, the average miles per hour went up, I think, like five or six miles per hour. And um, and not that velocity is everything, but it sure does help in today's game. And uh, it, it's just it's nice to see uh, that back that, that back end of that bullpen bolstered the way it is, because these guys can be dominant um, and they can get righties and lefties out. I, I don't know if there's any, you know, tr- quote unquote specialist out there that they really need because they can get righties and lefties out. But yeah, uh the is going to score some runs. They just are. And they're going to have to because of this division, which is the best division in baseball. It's not even close. And the arms that they have in this division with the Grom and Scherzer uh you can go down down and the road. Three, I mean, who they saw, even, yeah. even the I mean look at the the Marlins have given the Phillies fits over the last couple of years because of the starting pitching and it's young starting pitching down there in Miami. And uh it's it's not going to be easy easy task.
0: Yeah, and you say it takes the pressure off of the offense, takes the pressure off of the starting pitcher. I'll tell you what, it takes the pressure off of Joe Girardi a little bit, too, does it not?
1: <laughs> oh, without a doubt. I mean, he could have, I, felt real, I felt bad for the guy, last yeah. year because there's nothing that he could do. You know, close his eyes, uh, give me that guy, you know, and it's like it, they just weren't going to get the job done, and it wasn't from a lack of effort. They were just not good last year, and uh, Joe Girardi had his hands tied, and and another thing I, I want to point out, Mark, is I think that Caleb Gotham, the new pitching coach, I think these guys are putting a lot of stock in what he has to say. Um, you know, he said that he can fix them mentally. Joe Girardi said, we, we talked to him in spring training, said he can fix these guys mentally and physically. And that's that's really what you want out of your pitching coach. Despite not having a ton of experience, and he's a young guy, but uh, they really seem to, to like what he's saying.
0: Yeah, I, I like it too. And I, I will not... Uh... I will not be surprised if I see Joe Girardi skip out to make a pitching change this year, just because, you know, he's happy. He's, he's like, Hey, I got guys to go through. I'm going to go out there. All right. Let me ask you about Alec Bohm because uh, we were pleasantly surprised by Alec Bohm last year uh, and what he was able to bring in the shortened time that he was up in the big leagues early this season. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling like he's going to be that guy Uh, clutch for one and just a guy that can get his bat to the ball. Yeah. And
1: you just don't see it, especially out of younger guys. His approach does not change. You want to throw me a ball in? Okay, I'll turn on. Throw me a ball down the middle. I'll hit up the middle. Throw me a ball away. I'll hit it the right. And he does it with authority. He likes to hit everything on the line. He gets frustrated as, as heck when he strikes out, which, yeah. you know, for some guys, it's just a stat. Oh, he struck out. It's just like popping up. No, it's not. Okay? Nope. And and his approach for a younger guy, and I'll be the first one to tell you, Mark, when I got caught up and I was doing well, I thought I had to do more, and that's what he does not do. And that's that's the the part of him in, in him that says, "No, I'm sticking with my approach. Uh, that's who I am." And he doesn't get away from. Him. He doesn't try and do too much. He doesn't overswing. He doesn't hit a home run at you know 400 feet and try and hit the next one 450. He just stays within himself. And I think he's going to be a good one for a lot of years. And his defense yeah. has improved too. He it really got his better. tail off in spring training. He looks a lot better in the field. Uh, He's made some good plays early on in this season, and um, he just looks like a a really good professional.
0: Yeah, he's going to be fun to watch. All right, before I let you go, uh, probably the biggest story across baseball, and not just in Philadelphia, but uh, fans back in the stands. And I know in Philly it's still limited, uh, although it is getting better, but it's limited Mm -hmm. now. But the the 8,000-plus that that were in the ballpark um, early in the season – You could hear them. They looked great. They sounded great. You were there. Uh, What was your take on it? It felt like more,
1: Murph. It really did. It felt like more. And listen, these players feed off it. And Zach Wheeler, to to give him credit, we interviewed him in spring training. He said, you know what? It was tough at times last year to kind of get it going. And he said, and we shouldn't use that as an excuse, but it it just was. I said, what? The cardboard cutouts didn't do it for you? (laughs) So um it's it's these fans they they're craving baseball anywhere you go mark it's yeah. like oh, i can't wait to get back to the ballpark you know you get you stop at a wawa get a cup of coffee i can't wait to get back to the ballpark i can't wait um you know the kids that are on my, my son's teams and they're all like i can't wait to get back to the ballpark and it's it's nice to hear and i think they're going to have an awful lot to root for this year and i'm not trying to sound like a homer but i think this team has something in the back of their mind saying You know what? Everyone's talking about the Braves and the Mets. Don't forget about us. and Don't forget. And rightfully so. And um, I think the fans are taking notice of that, too. And it's nice to see them back.
0: Yeah, it certainly is. Well, Ben, always nice to see you. I appreciate you jumping on and and giving us your thoughts on the current team. We'll do this again in a couple of weeks, if that's okay with you. I'd love to, Mark. Appreciate it. All right. Ben Davis from NBC Sports Philadelphia joining us here to talk about the 2021 team. We'll talk to him soon. And, uh, well, that's going to put a wrap. On the podcast today, Glove Stories with Murph is a presentation of SBC Media Partners. The engineer for Glove Stories is Chad Evans. Cindy Webster is our marketing and guest relations director. And our executive producer is Roger Head. Whether you're watching us on YouTube or downloading the podcast from one of our major podcast providers like Apple, Google, or Spotify, make sure to like or subscribe us. So we can let you know when a new episode of glove stories with Murph is coming your way. We'll release new episodes weekly throughout the MLB 2021 season until then we'll see you next time.